dear brothers and sisters in Christ, if you will please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the first book of the Scriptures, that is, to Genesis. Uh, I do not have the number of the Pew Bible, but it's in the beginning. Uh, But this book is so fundamental for us to understand how God relates to His covenant people, because He's revealing His plan of redemption, the plan of salvation, even in uh, small ways, even in seed form, uh, to our fathers in the faith. I'm very grateful for the opportunity uh, to the session to bring this word to you tonight. And I'm very grateful to many of you who have encouraged me and prayed for me and lifted me up uh, to our Father in heaven. But I ask that you would come now and let us pray for God's blessing upon this time once more before we read God's word. So please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, truly you are a holy God. And all the tongues, all tribes, all nations, all peoples will one day bow the knee to you and sing your praises and glory. We thank you that you have been pleased to give us your word and you have been pleased to open our eyes to the fact that this is the very word of God. We pray tonight that you would protect us from the distractions of tomorrow, of Monday, of the work week, the distractions of the devil, the distractions of even the weakness of our flesh, and that we would be blessed. I pray that you would be pleased to even use the foolishness of my words to Encourage the brothers and sisters gathered here. Father, we pray all these things, trusting in the name of Christ Jesus alone. Amen. I ask that you, as you are able, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, and we will read Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. Please listen now as I read the words of God to us. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord shall be provided. You may be seated. 
this is far has been the reading of God's word, and though heaven and earth will pass away, these words will not pass away. To give us just a bit of context before we dive into our, cha- uh, our section this evening, the first few chapters of Genesis have been very busy in the history of mankind. Adam has rebelled against God. He's chosen death, and there's now enmity between God and man, and the people are doing whatever is right in their own eyes. They've been marrying two women, perverting marriage. They've been murdering boys for insulting them, violating the sanctity of life. They are worshiping idols and rejecting the one true God. They are committing homosexuality, and every intention of man's heart is now wicked before the Lord's eyes. And this is all just within the first few chapters. And the stench of this mess is so bad that the Lord sees fit to destroy His creation in a worldwide flood. And the waters of judgment have forever changed the face of the earth. But in God's wrath, He has remembered mercy, and He has covenanted Himself and saved one man and his family, Noah. And He has promised never to destroy the world again through water. But now, Abraham is, uh, God is called Abram out of the land of idolaters, the land of his fathers, and He has covenanted him himself to Abram. That is, he has bound himself to him to protect, to defend, and to bless Abram so that he would be Abraham, the father of many nations. God has given Abram a land. He's promised to give him a land, a people, and a great name. And if God has promised, then he will fulfill this. He cannot lie. But a son of the covenant was also promised to Abram and his wife. And after years of waiting, Sarah's womb, which was too old to conceive a child, was miraculously blessed with Isaac. So that's where we enter into the history. We enter into the history of God dealing with Abraham in chapter 22, and we see that God is a loving father. Commentary has called this passage of Scripture holy ground because of the incredible display of the gospel we see here in the command and in the obedience. This passage stands out in Scripture because of the ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament. You see, we know the end of this story. We know the outcome. We have a better revelation of the plan of redemption from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we understand Genesis 22 is just a shadow of the great mystery of salvation to come. There will be a father who brings his son up onto a mountain and lays him on the altar, but the knife will not be stayed over him. As we consider our passage of Scripture tonight, let us consider three things, three ideas as we move through Genesis 22, the first 14 verses. And the first thing that we can see is a test, a test in verses 1 through 2. And as we move to see this first point, let's consider that our God does not change. Even though this is 4,000 years in the past, God deals with His children in the same way. That is, those whom He loves, He disciplines. And God grows His children through trials. And that's exactly what we see in verse 1 of our chapter. And you can look there with me. We see that after these things, God tests Abraham. And you remember, Abraham struggles. He struggles to to trust the Lord. Just two chapters ago, Abraham was in the land of the Negev, in the land of Abimelech. Because Abraham was afraid of being killed for the beauty of his wife, he commands his wife to lie, to tell Abimelech that she's his sister. And he allows Abimelech to take Sarah, the wife of his youth, to be his wife. Furthermore, he's allowing the wife that God promised the covenant line to come through to be taken by another man. Abraham's letting fear control his actions. He's not trusting the Lord. He's leaning on his own understanding. And it takes an intervention of the Lord to arrest Abimelech 
and to reveal that Sarah is Abraham's wife, and the Lord saves the covenant line. You see, we, like Abraham, struggle to have faith under the pressures of life. Abraham struggles to live out his faith, to be true, when the waves of providence come crashing against him. So he needs this test. He needs this discipline from the Lord. He needs to be taught faith. He needs to learn his dependence upon God for his daily bread, for his life, and even for the lives of his wife and son. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing here. God is giving Abraham an opportunity, an opportunity to test his faith. And the purpose of this test is to make Abraham grow in his dependence on God. And so look again with me at verses 1 and 2. Notice that in verse 1, we see, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. That These things that Moses is referring to in verse 1 is referring to the birth of Isaac in the previous chapter. It's very clear that the Lord is the one who gave this son as he visited Sarah. And the fact that this son is born is a miracle and is pointing forward to a greater miraculous birth. This son is a son of the covenant. He's a son of the promise. And it is God's promise that he would provide this child. And all the Old Testament saints are looking forward to a son, a Messiah that would come through this line. And even though we know Isaac is not the Messiah, we know that Abraham is looking forward to the salvation to come through the line of this son. This son is precious. So with that in mind, look again with me at verse 2. God says to Abraham, take this son, your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Just try to imagine Abraham's shock at this command. If we were in Abraham's situation, there would be so many questions that would go through our minds. Our, our response would probably be something like, is God telling me to commit murder? Is God going to be false to his promises? Is he going to perform a miracle, give me a son in my old age, just to take him away from me? Is he not going to give me a land, a people, a blessed name? And the why questions would soon come after that. Oh God, why? Why would you tell me to kill my own son? Why would you give, me to him, give him to me at all? Why would you command me to kill my son that I love so much, my only son? And why would you give him to me for so many years that I might grow attached to him, see him grow, just to make, him, make me kill him, to take him away from me? Scripture doesn't record exactly the details in this text. Moses, carried along by the Holy Spirit, doesn't record Abraham's thoughts here. Rather, we see in the next verse, which is our next point, we see that Abraham obeys immediately. That is, the next morning, as soon as it was light, without hesitation. But let's not miss the hardness of this providence, the hardness of this test. Let's not skip over the fact that this is truly a burden to bear. And truly no other test like this has ever been commanded by commanded a, for a human to carry out by God. And let's not forget that this test came to Abraham when he's an old man, even though he's the father of a relatively young son, and he's a new parent. He's lived a full life, and the hardest test of his life has come when he's lived a full century on this earth. Now, he might have thought in his old age, he might have thought that leaving his family journeying through various lands, rescuing his cousin Lot from a whole allegiance of kings, interceding for Sodom and waiting 25 years for his son, Abraham might have thought that all of his trials in life were over. He had lived a full life, but the hardest trial of his life comes here at the end. 
He has to surrender his own son. The Lord is demanding Abraham to give up the son whom he loves. And Isaac is Abraham's most precious possession in all the world. It reminds me of Polycarp. Polycarp was a first century martyr. He was a man who knew John, uh, the disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. He lived faithfully in all of his life until the end. But instead of being allowed to die in peace, to retire and end his days uh, in peace, he was put on trial for being a Christian. And he was found guilty and burned at the stake. His hardest trial, the hardest trial of his life came at the end. And we can also think of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see throughout his ministry, Jesus tested and tried again and again his entire life, and each trial seems to build upon each other. Crowds become more intense in their hatred. The Pharisees become more bold in their mocking and in their opposition. And yet, as we heard about this morning, Christ endured no greater trial than the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's sorrowful, even to death, at the prospect, the wrath of God, the perfect Son of God, perfect son of man who had never known, never experienced any of the wrath of God because he had done no wrong. All all the trials before in his life were as nothing compared to the cross at the end. And yet without knowing, even if he could bear it, even pleading that it might pass from him, Jesus obeyed. And it's the same with Abraham here. The test for Abraham is the hardest test of his life. And the test is to obey the Lord no matter the cost. The Lord is asking Abraham, do you love your son more than me? Do you love anything that I have given you more than me? Is there anything you would withhold from me if I ask you to give it to me? The test is, are there other lovers that you have that are more precious than me, your God? Will you place me above all things? Do you love your wisdom more than me, Abraham? Do you have to know why first? Do you have to have the Lord explain his commands to you? Or will you obey? In Genesis 18, Abraham is interceding for Sodom, and he confesses with his mouth that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. But now, Abraham has to live out his confession. He has to have ultimate trust the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Perhaps the Lord is bringing about a hard providence in your life right now. Perhaps you've lost a job, lost a parent, a loved one, Perhaps you've lost a child. Perhaps you've been betrayed at the workplace or people are slandering your name, making it hard for you to provide for your family. Perhaps there is some terrible sickness in your body right now. How are you to bear all these burdens? How are you to make it one day to the next, keeping it together? Well, I offer you nothing more than what Abraham took with him to the Mount Moriah. Abraham took faith with him. Abraham had a shadowy faith, but we have a faith that is rich and full. Abraham had faith in God, but Abraham's faith was looking forward. He had faith that God will redeem. We have faith that God has redeemed. We now have the greatest proof of God's character, that God is a good and compassionate father, because we have what Abraham was only looking forward to. We have proof of the sovereignty of God, of God's eternal wisdom, of God's love and care of God's faithfulness to keep all of His promises, for all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We have the full scriptures that remind us that God is our Father. I remind you of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5, this question that is put to us Christians. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved by him. For the Lord disciplines those who he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. See, the Lord knows us. He knows our frame. He knows that we are prone to wander, prone to despair, prone to buckle under pressure. So we need to be taught. We need to be led by him to learn our dependence on our Father for our daily bread and, yes, for our lives. And again, I point you to Hebrews in the example of Christ. In chapter 5, the author of Hebrews says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned, Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was perfect in all of his thoughts, words, and deeds. And yet, as our great high priest, Jesus had to learn obedience through trials. Our elder brother was tested by the Father in order that he might learn to obey, that he might obey even to death on a cross. We know that our faith, when it is tested, produces steadfastness. And when the Father gives us trials, he's drawing us closer to him. So we can say, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. So let us be encouraged. Let's be encouraged that we get to follow the footsteps of our Savior. Because we are tested, it's an opportunity for us to show what we love most. If we love our reason most, then it will show under pressure. But if we love God our Father the most, then it is an opportunity for us to imitate our Savior, Christ, and obey no matter the cost. We also are tested as by the Lord just as Abraham was tested. And the trials of our life are setting us apart from the world. They are to teach us the Father is able to give us strength to get through our trials, not out of them. So let our prayer then be, O oh, Father, give me the strength to obey you. Let us even count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kind. And why? Because they come from the loving hand of our Heavenly Father. So now that we have seen this test in verses 1 and 2, let us secondly see the response. The response to that test, which is our second point, faith and obedience. Obedience in verses 2 through 8. What is Abraham's response to the God who tells him to sacrifice his own child? Because of the covenant faithfulness of God, and because of the faith Abraham had in God, he obeys. And I want to point out to us this evening the nature of Abraham's obedience. In the text, there's not the slightest hiccup between God's command and Abraham's obedience. And so from the context, we say God commanded, so Abraham obeyed. Now, you might think it is a small thing to point out and a big emphasis to put on just one little word. But let me point out to us, this is what true obedience looks like. There probably was some time between when God comes to Abraham at night and gives him the command in the morning when he is able to obey. The idea is Abraham's obeying at the first opportunity. There's no hesitation. And this is not easy obedience. This is not a command to take a three-day hike down the road and then come back. This is a command for Abraham to kill his own son. But here, Abraham is not leaning on his own understanding, but he is submitting himself to the Lord and trusting that the Lord will make all of his paths straight. 
covenant children. This is how you are, this is what God requires of you in the fifth commandment. This is what obedience looks like. There is no grumbling, there's no pouting, no talking back, no arguing with our parents. There is full and complete obedience, even when we don't understand, even when it's hard. And parents, this is the sort of obedience that we must be modeling for our children. When God calls us into worship every Sunday morning and evening, are we obeying? Are we obeying fully and completely and even with cheerful hearts? Husbands, are we loving our wives well? And wives, are you submitting to your husbands? Because God has commanded us to do so. And church, are we responding to the people over us in obedience to our elders, to our deacons? Do we obey with cheerful hearts? And Abraham's obedience does not just involve himself. He brings his son with him as God commanded. But notice he also brings others with him. Notice verse 3. We see Abraham making extensive preparations to obey the Lord. Abraham probably had to get everything ready for a three-day journey. But we see him take fire. We see him take a knife and prepare the wood and put everything on a donkey. He is putting everything in order to obey the Lord fully and completely. This is full obedience. And notice something very subtle here. Notice that it takes three days between verses 3 and 4. What must that three-day journey have been like? In verse 5, we see the result of Abraham meditating, sitting with this command for three days and three nights. Abraham wrestling with this command from the Lord. After three days, he arrives at his conclusion. He says to the young man, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship, and literally, we will come back to you. The verb here is plural. Abraham is saying, we will worship, and we will go, and we will come back. You see, already here, Abraham has faith. He has faith that God will be true to his word. And again, the author of Hebrews helps us understand what's going on in this passage. In chapter 11, verse 17, the author of Hebrews tells us, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, aside from that spoiler there at the end, we know that Abraham is running on faith at this point. Every step he takes towards the mountain has to have been like walking on hot coals. Every mile must have felt like a crushing weight on his chest. But nevertheless, after three days, or over the three-day journey, Abraham trusts in the Lord. He does not know exactly what God will do, but Abraham knows that God will fulfill his promise that he made. Since God is all-powerful, surely he could even raise his son from the dead. And that is the kind of faith Abraham has in his God. As we consider this point and consider Abraham's response, I want to press home to our hearts that to have faith is to obey. If we have faith in God, that is, if we trust in God the Father, if we believe that Jesus Christ reigns, that all of his enemies are being made a footstool to his feet, even now, if we believe that one day soon Christ will return and judge all the earth, there will be evidence in our lives. There will be evidence to condemn us of being Christians. And the evidence of faith is obedience. And Abraham's obedience here shows his faith. And faith, and this faith is in the sovereignty of God. And it is counted to Abraham as righteousness. You see, 
We cannot say that we have faith in God if we do not obey Him. We cannot say that we are His children if we never listen to His Word. James 1 and 2 tells us without work, that is without obedience, our faith is nothing. James even references Abraham here and says that Abraham's faith would have done him no good if he did not obey. Abraham's faith needed vindication. That is, there needed to be proof, evidence that he had faith, that he really did trust. If we want to see the ultimate work, the ultimate obedience that shows true trust and obedience and faith, then we look no further than the cross, which is the model of our faith. Before the foundation of the earth, God held counsel with himself, and the Father asked, Who will save these wicked and rebellious people? Who will I take to the mountain to offer up as a sacrifice? And the Son, the only Son of God, whom he loved, the second person of the Trinity, said, Behold, here I am, send me. Send me to be acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, to be crucified, to die the cursed death on a tree. And when the time came, when the hour had come, the Son's faith was proven by his obedience. And Christ did go to the cross in silent submission to the Father's will. And this is the type of faith that we must be working towards, that we must have. When the Lord calls, do we answer? When the Lord says that our hearts are deceitful, do we refuse to lean on our own understanding? When the Lord says that sexual relationships outside of marriage are forbidden, that marriage is between one man and one woman, do we make a covenant even with our eyes? When the Lord calls upon us to give our tithes to the church, do we obey with cheerful and grateful hearts? If we have faith in Christ, let us seek to be confirming our faith by living out obedience. May our obedience be like Abraham's. May we be diligent in our preparations to obey. May we seek to be Christians who, like James 1.12 says, are blessed because we remain steadfast under trial. For when we have stood the test of time, we will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to give to those who love him. And that brings us thirdly to the salvation. The salvation in a great deliverance in verses 9 through 14. We see deliverance from the knife of the Father. And we see substitution. And look again with me at verse 9. Notice that the Lord has made good on his word. He did show Abraham the place on the mountain, and they did come to it. And when they came to it, when they reached the place, Abraham did not falter, but he built the altar on which he was to sacrifice his son. He arranges the wood just so. He completes his preparations to make this burnt offering to the Lord. Everything is prepared. Abraham has not left anything undone which the Lord has commanded him to do. And notice this detail. Notice Abraham binds his own child and lays him on the altar. Many of you know that my wife and I have recently been blessed with a child, and even though still in the womb, I cannot imagine taking my, my child and tying it together his small arms and legs, and picking him up and putting him on a pile of wood to be burned, to be killed. And I am pressing the details of this passage to us tonight so that we understand this is what every sin deserves. Every sin deserves the wrath and the curse of God. Because every sin is a personal attack against this God. We all deserve to be bound up and to be placed on the altar of God's justice and then to be killed by the one who loves us, the one who formed us even in the womb. For these are the wages of sin. The wages of sinners, death. And that is the picture here. 
God requires death, and He cannot let the guilty go unpunished. The law demands satisfaction. We have all fallen in Adam, and we all inherit a sinful heart, and we all inherit a sinful nature, and we all commit sins that are worthy of death. And in the moment, from the moment we are born, we are born in sin. And this is our place on the altar, under the knife of the Father. And like Isaac, there was nothing between us and the wrath and curse of God. And the Father's hand was on the knife. But God, but God, in verse 12, God speaks. And if you are like me, then verse 12 is a sigh of relief verse. The music has been building for 10 verses. The brass has been there from verse 1, and the voice of God speaks. And the strings have entered in with the first rays of light in the morning when Abraham makes his preparations. And the deep cellos have been swelling as attention builds up on the road to the mountain. And the cymbals now clash together in verse 9 as the altar is built. And the entire voice of the orchestra is deafening in verse 10 as Abraham reaches out his hand and takes the knife. But then in verse 12, the sweet violins bring us down from the precipice of, of plummeting human emotion and tragedy. And as God has skillfully and artfully crafted this symphony, let us appreciate the grandeur of this Old Testament shadow of the cross of atonement, forgiveness for sins. At this point, let me point out to us that the voice of God speaking in our passage is so very important. In verse 1 of chapter 22, the voice of God came to Abraham and called him once. And God commanded Abraham to obey. And the voice of God has brought Abraham here to this place with his son on the altar under his knife. But now the voice of God comes again more urgently and calls Abraham twice, and he gives him the gospel here. And yes, the gospel is not a fully grown tree, it is but a small sapling, but we see substitution and atonement right here. There must be death for sins, but there can be a divinely given substitute for the sinner. Abraham had the faith that God would provide a lamb for the sacrifice, but Abraham never once thought that God would not require sacrifice for sin. The justice of God is firm and eternal. The gospel is not the good news of an absence of a sacrifice, of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Rather, the gospel is the good news of another being offered up in our place for our sin. And so in verse 13, Abraham's faith is rewarded, and the Lord provided a ram for the sacrifice with his horns caught in a thicket. So Abraham, no doubt, overflowing with relief, goes and takes the ram, and he brings the knife, which was meant for his son, and cuts the throat of this animal in his place. The altar is still lit, and the flames are still kindled. The flesh is still consumed, and death is still here. But God, being rich in mercy, has provided a substitute for Isaac. God has provided another to take his place. In John chapter 8, Jesus is disputing with the Jews, and the Jews are saying, you are a Samaritan, and you have a demon, and you're not a son of Abraham like us. Jesus responds in verse 56, and he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, Abraham did not 
get a horoscope to look down the corridors of time and see the cross. But he saw substitution for sins right here. He saw that death was needed for the penalty of sins, and he saw atonement because God did not ask for more. Abraham is looking here with the eyes of faith. He's looking forward to the hope and to the expectation of Christ. And so we see verse 14. He names the place the Lord will provide. And so it is said even to the days when Moses writes this down, on the mount of the Lord shall be provided. And on the hill, on the trash heap outside of Jerusalem, what was provided? Was it another ram whose blood accomplished nothing? No, on the mountain of the Lord, the father was pleased to spare not his own son, but he bound him and laid him on the altar of justice, and his hand was not stayed. The knife that should have been for us was turned upon the spotless lamb. The knife was not stopped over Christ, but the father killed him, killed the son of man who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the lamb who was slain. He is a sacrificial substitute, and through his death, the Lord has provided a way for us to become sons of God and heirs of the life to come. And notice specifically that the text says, Abraham offered up this ram instead of or in the place of his son. This right here is penal substitutionary atonement for our sins. The penalty, the guilt that we have earned through the for the wages of sin, Jesus pays by taking our place by substituting himself for us he takes upon our guilt and we take on his righteousness and jesus becomes on the cross as luther rightly says the biggest sinner in the world the father lays on the son the sins of the whole world that is the sins of the elect in the old testament today and even the sins of the elect who are unborn and the son dies in our place as our substitute and through his death we have atonement that is forgiveness of our sins. Only because Jesus died can the Father say, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become as white as snow. Have you been washed as white as snow today? Or are you still on the altar, condemned by your sins and justly deserving the eternal condemnation of God? Have you broken God's law again this week? Have you failed to obey in faith immediately, without hesitation? Have you fallen short? Are you in need of a substitute? Well, there is good news for the likes of you and me. There is a fountain filled with blood that is drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners who are, who are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We who know our sin, we can have hope because we are clinging to this great high priest, the Christ who has entered into the most holy place with his own blood and made atonement for us. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, because it is sufficient for all time. So let us lay hold of Christ in faith. In Revelation chapter 5, John sees the scroll that cannot be opened. John is weeping because there is no one to open this scroll. But then he sees a lamb, verse 6, standing as though it had been slain. And this lamb, this lamb was worthy to open the scroll containing the names of the elect. And why was this lamb worthy? It was because he had been slain by the Father. The heavenly host praised this lamb in verse 9 of chapter 5. They say, 
Worthy are you to open this scroll and to open its seal. For you are you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Let us lay hold of this Lamb who died in our place, and let us give to Christ all of our power, all of our wealth, wisdom, might, honor, and blessing. For he took our place so that we would be forgiven. Please come with me in prayer. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have been pleased to spare not your own son, but to deliver him up for the sins of us all. And if you have given him Christ, your son, your only son, whom you love to us, how will you not with him give us all things? So, Father, we pray that you would help us in our weak state. You would help us to lay hold of Christ and all of his benefits, all of the benefits purchased for us by his once-for-all sacrifice. We pray that we would be those people who honor you in our thoughts, words, and deeds, and that when people look at us, they will know that we are Christ's disciples because we love one another. Father, as we even come now to reflect upon and to remember the great sacrifice of Christ in the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would give us the reverence that is due to this occasion. We pray that you would do these things in the name of Christ. Amen.